Talo Falava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Elisha Foon. Coming up, the biggest international event to ever be hosted in Solomon Islands is kicking off. Also, food aid is starting to be distributed to people whose gardens have been wrecked. Recovery efforts continue almost a month on since tropical cyclone Lola ripped through Vanuatu. And later, we finish our two-part series on women's reproductive rights and gender equality in the Pacific. Four people have died during violence in a by-election in Langip electorate in Papua New Guinea's Inga province. The violence also prompted the sudden resignation of the returning officer. Our correspondent in PNG, Scott Whitey, told Don Wiseman that it has been a very difficult election to run. Both in terms of security and the administration of it, because initially they were supposed to have that election relocated to another town for the counting to happen. Now, there's been a lot of protests uh, against that move. Now, they've uh, decided to hold the counting in Wabeg, which is the provincial capital of of Inga. That's been accepted by many of the parties, but there still has been a lot of violence around this election. Most specifically, I suppose, we've had four deaths. Yes, so factions associated with the candidates have clashed in Wabeg Town. Initially, three people were were killed, several more injured. From recent reports, I've just found out that one more has died from his injuries in hospital. So, so that's the situation. Now, the situation is generally calm right now in Wabeg as counting progresses towards the end. The writs are supposed to be returned at 4 p.m., this afternoon. Now, that's hit a snag because the returning officer has resigned due to security concerns of his own. So he had been threatened? Yes, he's been threatened. He outlined that the grounds for his resignation include constant intimidation, threats to himself, as well as uh, he cited the four deaths uh, I guess doesn't want to be associated with uh, in any of the violence that's happened so far. But uh, of greater concern has been uh, his personal security and and that of his family. This is happening amid efforts to reopen the Pogira mine, which is just down the road, and concerns about tribal fighting. And through this period, there's still been ongoing tribal fighting. Is it related in any way? It's largely compartmentalised. You know, if if it's election-related, then it's election-related. But you know, there's always this threat of a spillover affecting the reopening of the mine and, and economic activities and, and, and everything else. In terms of the external perspective of Enga, it doesn't do Enga any good. And, and it's a difficult situation to manage in terms of the image and then the, the local situation, building up confidence, ensuring that there is confidence for the business community and particularly for mine workers who want to return to Pogera to work. And I know that the Canadian company that's behind Pogera, the one thing they're expecting and hoping to see is that there is going to be a restoration of law and order. And they must be, I guess, in their boardroom, be having some misgivings right now. Yes, you know, Don, security costs have always been high in, in Papua New Guinea, and particularly in the highlands and, and in, in Pogra, uh, security concerns have always been of, of the utmost importance and the costs are astronomical. So with this situation here, they'll be looking at costs associated with logistics, costs associated with the transportation of equipment, how to protect it, costs associated basically with protecting infrastructure, asset and manpower. <laughs> 
Almost a month has passed since tropical cyclone Lolo ripped through Vanuatu at gusts peaking around 300 kilometers per hour. Food has arrived in affected areas, and the environment is starting to make a comeback. With Lola arriving before cyclone season, everyone's main concern is now when the next one will come, as Caleb Fotheringham reports. A teacher on Pentecost Island in Vanuatu, which was one of the hardest hit by Lola, says the environment is slowly starting to recover. Andrew Gray says aid has removed a lot of the stress around food, and most have managed crude fixes to their homes. Food aid is starting to be distributed to people whose gardens have been wrecked. The landscape is slowly changing colour. It hit sort of peak brownness about a week after the cyclone when all the smashed vegetation had decayed and withered and now it's very slowly starting to turn green again. The biggest concern is now for the next one. Vanuatu has been battered by three cyclones in the past eight months, all at or surpassing Category 4 strength. Lola arrived before the official season even started. Almost every time dark clouds gather, people are sort of rushing to sort of find someone with um, data on their phone to check the weather forecast. Uh, is this the next cyclone? Mr Gray says people are now planning for the future, questioning if what they build will endure. Chief of Vanuatu's UNICEF field office, Eric Dupier, says the repetition is affecting children's development. More they are sick, more they are weak, less they are able to recover, and that's really impact the future of their life with their uh, capacity uh, development. So today that's really, really the concern is the repetition of the cyclone, the lack of time to recover. Thousands of Vanuatu school students had their education disrupted. Mr Gray says his school, Ranwadi College, returned for only two weeks, except for seniors who have their exams. He says students are upset especially because the end-of-year graduation ceremony will be far smaller. It's a really big event in students' lives. Their families come, and quite a lot of these students are the first generation of their families to complete high school, so it's quite a big deal for them. And that has had to be drastically scaled back. The chapel is half-damaged and food supplies are enough for people to eat at home but not adequate for a big public feast. Mr Gray says every school has done what's best suited them, depending on the damage they received. The biggest international event to ever be hosted in Solomon Islands is kicking off. 24 Pacific countries and territories, including Australia and New Zealand, have athletes competing over the next two weeks in Honiara. I spoke with RNZ Pacific editor Kuroi Hawkins, who is on his way to cover the event. Thank you, Thomas. Elisa, yes, so the opening ceremony is on the 19th of November. I get there on the morning of the Sunday. However, some sports have already kicked off on the Friday. We've had uh, football kickoff. We've had volleyball kickoff, tennis and basketball. So really exciting times. Looking forward to getting there and getting in on some of that action. Who are the defending champions? Yes, so coming in from the last Pacific Games, which was in Samoa, New Caledonia, 76 gold. Papua New Guinea, 38 gold. Actually tied with the host nation, 38 gold. Tahiti, Fiji, Australia, Nauru, Tonga, New Zealand and Vanuatu running out the top 10. So those are the defending champions. Uh, defending champions, obviously, New Caledonia. But those are really strong medal contenders coming in. Interestingly, uh, Solomon Islands Prime Minister had a very ambitious uh, goal of 40 gold. Uh, is what he what he wanted his athletes and to to win at these these games. Obviously, the first time the country has had any form of actual 
uh, games infrastructure, and they only got four goals at the last game. So quite a tall order. Wow. There'll be a lot of training going into that, I'm sure, for that result. Tell me, um, you're heading over on Saturday to cover the games, but it's also somewhat of a homecoming for you. Sensing, Are you sensing much excitement from friends and family in Honiara? Yeah, it seems seems to be. Um, I'm very excited to be going home. Um, there seems to be a lot of mixed reactions to it. I think people that have put work in and that have, you know, really are still still struggling to make this thing work and to put on a good um, hospitality for the athletes and make sure everything runs smoothly. They're really being positive about it and trying to work on it. But then you're hearing stories about misused funds and um, some of the contracts that have been given out not not going follow the following the right procedures. And so there's a lot of accountability in that that kind of commentary as well in that space. So there's been a lot of talk in the lead up about security for the games. Yes, quite interested as well. I've been asking for an interview with the police commissioner to talk about this um, massive, massive security presence. Obviously, it's a lot of people there, about 5,000 athletes and officials all up. It's a small, small city and it has had problems with crowd control in the past. Um, but uh, we've had uh, support announced from Australia, the biggest so far, 100 AFP officers, 350 ADF defense personnel. There's uh, RNZ AF um, New Zealand flight crew there supporting with helicopter. Uh, there's a U, uh, U.S. Mercy hospital ship that will be there supporting medical supplies for the games. PNG DF for there, Fiji DF for there. Um, so yeah, quite a quite a big presence in there. I've seen some comments crop up about like, is is this a games or is this a war zone <laughs> kind of thing? But yeah. uh, uh, they're all there, as they've said in their releases, that they've been there. They're they're going there on the invitation of the Solomon Islands government uh, on the needs that they they have for delivering a safe and secure game. So yeah, I'll be interested to to have a bit of a, a sense of that security presence as well when I get there. Now for the finale of our two-part series on gender equality and family planning in the Pacific. FP2030 Pacific Engagement Advisor Jofaletti Vicoso spoke to me about the importance of creating a safe space for women to report sexual abuse and be supported on issues like incest, rape and abortion. When you talk about abortion rights, most of the laws and policies of the Pacific is it's very restrictive. Restrictive in the sense that it can be performed only to certain, if it's by a certified doctor or if we have a court order or if it's in the case of rape or incest. So those are those provisions that's in place. I feel like, again, people are dictating women what they should do and what they shouldn't do. I think it's about time that we allow women to decide for themselves what they want to do with their body giving them that bodily autonomy. Tonga is the only Pacific Island country that is very, um, it is a big no-no because they haven't endorsed the CEDAW yet, uh, which should be very interesting because Tonga, I heard, is also hosting the next Pacific Leaders meeting. Maybe that could be an opportunity to work with their government to make a commitment to be able to progress with human rights uh, for all. Guam seems to have progressed in the area around abortion. Yes, uh, Guam, uh, most of some of the uh, northern Pacific countries, um, I'm assuming maybe it's because of the connection that they have with the American territories. For example, this U.S. partnership that we have with the Pacific leaders. I think leaders need to not only think about 
corporation money related things they need to also look at things around health related stuff and things around sexual reproductive health are one of the key things that leaders don't usually like to talk about because the word sexual is there there's a regional call collective for looking at people uh, the pacific people's health and they're looking at things around sexual reproductive health maternal and child health okay, so it's um, on the agenda it's on the agenda but in terms of tracking it in terms of financing it in terms of investment in it it's not i feel like it shouldn't just be another document that we've created just to show our bilateral partners that we've had a successful meeting we've discussed key critical issues around human rights etc but they need to put their money where their mouth is mm-hmm. like in invest in it resource mobilization if you look at most of some of these countries they don't have specific special units for sexual reproductive health clinics or if you look at the condition of it it doesn't look good compared to what we have with others briefly talk to me about the culture around calling out incest and justice for people that have faced that particularly it's an issue in the cook islands according to locals i think calling out incest uh you know it it goes again to the the culture of respect that we have for elders or people that we assume as hold power in our household many women girls and boys are uh, you know have been victims of rape or um, sexual abuse from their own uncles where can they find support what safeguards are there i do know here in the i know there there's a few organizations in country that have some of those counseling support um but i also know because of the power dynamics that we have because someone who holds high status in country or in that society in that community because someone is well educated people fear making a formal complaint about them because they are seen as a disgrace they are seen as they um that they are very rebellious mm-hmm. uh speaking out on human rights can be perceived as uh you are being rebellious you are not you're you're breaking our culture that the human rights is not our culture um i think it's not about that it's about opening up that conversation for people to speak out i think governments and leaders need to provide that enabling environment so that people can speak and not just be another victim of um, abuse or or being looked down at in society Voices of Wellington's signature choir during a full day rehearsal. Pacific performers are preparing for an upcoming show at Auckland Spark Arena in collaboration with the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. Moira Tuilepa Taylor went along to a sneak peek of the performance. When we were tasked with doing these arrangements, both Helen and myself had the task of kind of finding the songs first. Um, and in terms of kind of our main criteria, was that the song had to kind of be significant to the culture that we were representing. And so, taking those songs and then putting a little bit of spin on it, but also making sure that we stay true to the essence of the original song and, and its original message. That's Jedra Tupai, assistant director of Signature Choir, speaking about Helen Tupai, the choir's music director. Thirteen Pacific songs will be performed in Auckland to a crowd of more than nine thousand people. The 50 members of Signature Choir will be joined by another 30 singers from Auckland performing November 24th. 
Nathan Lopa says as a Tokelauan, he's proud to know that two beautiful Tokelauan songs will be sung at the Mana Moana performance. The pride that I have when I hear the Ngangana Tokelau being sung by this talented group of people, I hope, just as it has to myself, empowers our young Tinihu, uh, our Tokelau youth, to please make the most and nurture and learning our language. He says in Pacific culture, songs are more than just a tune that we hum. It's a way that we documented history uh, and it's a way that we pass down stories through generations. And so to be able to have this opportunity uh, with Signature Choir and, and New Zealand Symphony Orchestra uh, singing these songs at this level uh, in front of a a jam-packed crowd, hopefully, in Auckland uh, is uh, paying homage to those who have gone before us and as well as introducing these songs to the newer generation. For Saimoni Ungdangunu, being part of the choir has helped him reconnect with his Fijian heritage. Just having this opportunity to be part of this group has pushed me to go away and try and um, find my identity again and reconnect with my culture. So I'm finding, like, personally, it's helping me... Um, reconnect with uh, my Fijian culture. Next Friday's concert follows on from the huge success of a similar concert in Wellington. Tepora Samir says despite the challenges of COVID-19, they have all persevered, making the setbacks worthwhile once they finally took to the stage. And I guess that really represents our Pacific people too, you know, the journey that, you know, we go through, even though it's... uh, bit of a struggle sometimes but we just persevere and we just get on with it and that's it reflected in the whole journey of last year. The choir members whose cultures span parts of the Pacific region unite to share hymns from their homelands. Henrietta Hankintangaloa says music is a universal language. We all come together to sing um, you know, with each other, but using our Pacific languages and the languages of our ancestors is just such a special thing to be a part of. Um, but also the music that's gone behind it, you know, all of the creative works um, and time that's gone into it is just a huge tribute to the people that have gone before us. She says they are excited to showcase 12 months of hard work. Chedra Tupai says everyone is pouring their hearts and souls into the performance to bring the best show they can. Tickets are forecast to sell out as Pacific Pride takes over the city of sales. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, tōwha soi fua.